Welcome to the Shine Bright Podcast. I'm your host, Brianna Castell. My hope is that this podcast will be a place to encourage women to shine their lights brightly and authentically by unapologetically being who God called us to be. You can expect to hear me talk about things like Jesus, how ghetto adulting is, finances, dating, therapy, and honestly, everything in between. My prayer is that each episode you will walk away feeling encouraged, inspired, and seen. Let's get into today's episode. Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of the Shine Bright Podcast. It is now a little over two weeks since the murder of George Floyd. And, you know, for many of us, these past two weeks have been heavy, overwhelming. We've had a lot of uncomfortable conversations. We've, I know I've blocked and unfollowed a lot of people. We've seen people out themselves as racist, whether celebrities, brands, high school friends, etc. Um, it's been, it's been a, been a heavy, heavy two weeks. I went to a protest on Saturday, I believe, Sun Saturday, yes, um, this past Saturday, and I was very encouraged by how many faces I saw that did not look like mine. I do believe, and like I said last week, I do believe that this conversation about racism can no longer keep happening with just Black people. White people need to acknowledge it, be aware of it, and be invited to be allies in this fight. Not even, actually, y'all don't even need an invitation. Just let's go. Like, come on now. But this week, um, I invited my favorite black man, my dad, to talk about race, um, his experiences being a black man in America, racism. Um, It's very interesting we didn't talk a lot about racism growing up in my household. And so, you know, I just have some questions for him and want to really just hear his perspective. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. Sorry, actually, before we move into this week's episode, I just want to say and acknowledge the heaviness of what you may still be feeling. We're two weeks past this situation, the actual murder, but I don't think for any of us that that time means anything but more compounding um, frustration, sadness. And so I do just want to encourage you, find something to do to decompress, whether that's going for a walk, whether that's buying a plant, I bought a plant, whether that is watching a funny movie, a comedy on, on your TV, shutting off your social media, just finding something to do to just decompress and, um, yeah, just check in with your heart. So sending you love and hugs. I know this has not been an easy past two weeks, um, but just want to make sure that you're taking care of you and prioritizing your mental health with all of this. So welcome to the podcast, dad. I'm super excited to have you as a guest. I mean, we're going to be talking about some heavy stuff today, but, um, welcome to the shine bright podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Are you? Yes, I am. Because this might be your last invitation with all the technical difficulties. Oh, no, no, no. We're going to do this again. <laughs> um. All right. Well, Dad, thanks so much for, for giving me some of your time today. Um, I know there's a lot going on and a lot probably going on in your heart. Um, for just background, I do want to give my dad a shout out because he, him and his wife, Marilena, were actually the people that bought me my podcast, Mike. And so I do have 
a lot, I do have them to thank a lot for um, this podcast being birthed. So shout out to you, Dad, and Marilena's amazing Christmas gift because I know she picks out the gifts. Okay. Yep. No problem. Anytime. <laughs> Um, Dad, you can be yourself, okay? Like you can make, you can crack your jokes and you can be yourself, okay? I'm just getting warmed up. Give me some time. <laughs> um, okay, so obviously it's been a very heavy week. Not even just week, the past couple of weeks. And um, so I wanted to have you on this podcast one because, well, you're my dad, but you're also a black man in America, and I think you've had some pretty unique experiences growing up in Boston. Um, being a MECO student, and we'll talk about what MECO is for those that aren't familiar with it, and then going to an HBCU. Um, So, but before we get into all of that, I do want to ask you the question that I like to start all of my podcasts with, and just asking you, how's your heart this week? Wow, how's my heart? My heart is heavy. It's it's very heavy this week. It's, um, you know, it's filled with a lot of sorrow, a lot of pain. Um, It's, uh, I've, I've, I cried a lot this week. Um, it's been mm. it's been a lot, a lot to process, um, and um, so yeah, it's been a very, very, very heavy heart. Yeah. Um. Well, same. I mean, I'll answer the question too. It's been weird. Like it's it's my heart has definitely been heavy, and I've been grieved by the things that I've been watching and seeing. A lot of the arguments on social media. Um, I feel like a lot of people have been showing their behinds as far as like racist people um, on Facebook and things like that. So that has definitely added um, more insult to injury. Um, But I also think there's a part of me that just kind of seeing some of the conversations that are coming out of this, seeing the action, and we'll talk about some of that stuff a little bit more, but um, I've never had this many conversations with people that don't look like me about race and racism. And so I am encouraged by that. So I think my heart is definitely heavy and burden as well but I do think there is a, a small part of my heart that is encouraged by some of the things that I'm seeing we have a lot more work to do but I don't think I've ever seen this amount of um, outpouring and support for the black community from communities that don't look like ours absolutely no you're absolutely right um, okay my first question so as a black man how are you processing all the events of police brutality um, and the aggressive treatment of black men in this country that not only have happened this month, that just have been happening all, I know all my life, all your life, this stuff has been happening for years. And how are you processing everything? Are you processing everything? It's difficult. I mean, because you know what's happening, you know what's going on and you're crying out internally and you know, it, it's just, it's, it's had a huge impact. Um, you, you know, as a black man, you know, other black men that have gone through this, if you haven't gone through it yourself. Mm. Um, so it's difficult. It's difficult. And the world is finally seeing what, you know, we're exposed to and what we're uh, forced to carry and walk around with every day. Yeah. I know for me watching the video, well, sorry, no, I didn't even watch the video. I've just been seeing, you know, the clips that people have been putting on social media and not even like wanting to look at that. And I feel like when this first started happening or like when, not when this first started happening, when we first started hearing about um, the George Floyd um, murder, 
I felt very numb. Like I wasn't processing it. I was seeing it, but I wasn't processing it. Like my mind wasn't allowing me to fully engage in what was, what was happening and in the rage and all that stuff. I felt like my heart was just like very numb. It was like another one. Are you kidding me? But I don't feel like I felt all of the feelings until maybe like a full week later. Uh, And so I wonder, I, I don't know if that's just unique to me and how I process it, but like, do you feel like you had a similar response to it? Did you feel like, oh my gosh, another one? Did you sit, like, was it immediate tears? Like, what was that, that processing experience for you? Yeah, it was almost an immediate reaction. It was, um, couldn't believe it. But I think the, um, the biggest thing about the video, and, and I would encourage everyone to watch the entire video. Um, I know people have seen small bits of it, but I would encourage you to um, watch the entire video and just, it's a horrible thing to watch, horrible Mm -hmm. thing to watch, Um, but just process it and understand that there are thousands and thousands, if not millions or more videos like this uh, throughout our society that have been uh, inflicted upon black men and it, it's horrific and we carry these videos around with us yeah you know, we see them we we hear the stories um and and it's a heavy load to carry yeah i know i cannot watch i think if you're not a person of color you definitely should watch that video I feel like black people have seen enough trauma and killings of our people from like slave movies, um, from the countless police brutality videos that we've seen. And for me personally, I could not watch that video because looking at that video, like I see you, I see Uncle Franz, I see all of the black men in my life that I love. And I just, my, like again, I, I can't process that. Like my heart can't watch that. Like, I know this stuff is real, and I don't, I can't watch a video of somebody dying. Uh Like, I can't, you know, I'm, you know, we've had this conversation about, like, when I'm driving in the street and a squirrel comes, like, I will move out of the way because I won't want to hit a squirrel. So Uh I can't watch an actual human life being taken on this video. Um, But for you, so you have a very unique, I think, um, experience when it comes to race, You obviously are African-American and um, you were born of parents who had escaped the segregated South. So Nana, um, your mom was from Florida and Poppy was from North Carolina. And both of them moved to Boston because they wanted just better opportunities for themselves. And it was kind of like that great migration up North. Uh And so for those that aren't familiar um, in Boston specifically, there is this program called MECO. Do you want to explain what MECO is? Yeah, so MECO is a program that takes inner-city youth and buses them out to uh, affluent suburbs. It's like a desegregation program, right? Correct, correct. And the program started back in the, um, I want to say early 1970s. The 60s, from what I ever Late 1960s. And it was a pretty impactful program, effective program. And getting, uh, it still is, I'm sorry, effective program, and getting uh, inner city youth 
the opportunity to get a quality ed- education. Okay. So for those that are like listening and trying to picture this, so say that you live in a, a city, think of a city, whatever state you're in, you live in one of the, the inner cities. And then this Mecco. So when you're born, you have to enter into a lottery, right? Your parents have to enter you in a lottery. Correct. And basically they picked, cause obviously like everybody can't get selected, but they pick a couple of students based off this lottery system. And those students get to go to think of like the richest town that is in whatever state you're in. They get bust inner cities to those towns. So yeah. a, a child that is from the inner city is now going and living this dichotomy in this other world of being in the suburbs and going to school in the suburbs, going to school with these very affluent students and so I know for me, so I was not a part of Mecco because we, when I was growing up, we were living in one of these affluent suburb areas. And so I was not a Mecco student, but because I was black at these schools, people often thought I was a Mecco student. And, you know, I was treated differently because of that. And so I guess my question for you is growing up in the inner city, but going to the school in super white, very rich town in Massachusetts, what was that like for you living in two worlds? Uh, it was a a uh, very surreal experience it was a you know it was a great experience i remember early on as i started you know the program i started in preschool mm. and my mom would come out there and take the bus with me and she, would, and she would go out and i you know I, I i actually have pictures of her playing with me and my brother um in in the preschool and she i think she did that for at least a year or two uh, but it was because it was a very tense time. I mean, there were riots over this mm-hmm. busing here in Boston. There were literally um, there's there were literally city councilors in the city of Boston out throwing rocks at the school buses. Mm. Um, and there are stories about that. And it's sad. It's such a sad thing uh, that these people had that much resentment and hatred in their heart. But it's um, so there was a lot of fear around the busing and sending your child off to, you know, a town an hour away. Yeah. Do you remember being fearful? I don't. Hmm. I don't. I don't. um, It was um, it was a really, really great experience. Uh, I'm really blessed to have had that experience. And I think. The experience uh-huh. of going to these schools, but maybe not necessarily the experience of being the fly in the buttermilk. Exactly. Yeah, I, I enjoyed my time in Weston. Um, you know, there were challenging times, uh, but for the most part, it was um, you know because there was there was a lot of other Mecco students around, mm-hmm. and we're most of us are still very tight today, mm-hmm. stay in touch. Um, that helped a lot. So I wasn't always the only one, uh, but it, that that really helped to have that um, that camaraderie, you know, on the bus every day and going and coming. When can you remember being made aware of your blackness? Um, Do you feel like you were always aware of it? I was it, always or? aware of my blackness. Oh yeah, my dad was. Oh yeah, Bobby. Very, <laughs> very strong about. You know, he's as you know, he was a historian, black, um, uh, African American history historian, and self-taught. And I mean, you know, seeing his library of books upon books, and just his wealth of knowledge, 
and experiences uh, with the subject matter. He was just uh, an awesome person who was always there to not just keep us grounded, but lift us up. Yeah. I remember those conversations. Yeah. Still that pride in us. So, so what kind of conversations did you have with Nana and Poppy, given that they were from, you know, the deep South, they experienced like Jim Crow and all that stuff. What kind of conversations did you have with them or did they have with you and their, you know, auntie and um, Uncle Ronald? What kind of conversations did they have with you guys about race? It was always that, you know, they were, were, you know, we're in a better place. Um, and they wanted us to be cognizant of, you know, what could happen and mm. to, to understand that, you know, you need to respect the law, but you've, you've got to understand that these situations could come up and you've got to survive them. Mm. So you, the they had, they had those conversations with you. Yeah, yeah, they weren't, they weren't, um, you know, a lot of conversations, but they were kind of understood. They were, we were talked about. Um, we talked about them okay. when, when incidences came up, uh, they would describe, you know, what went wrong, what happened, what should have happened, uh, whether it was an incident with me or with, you know, someone else in the neighborhood. Okay. Um, so we would, you know, there would be conscious conversations, but it was just, um, understood that, you know, you were going through these situations and you were going to be a part of this environment and you were going to have to, you know, switch between both worlds. And you're going to take advantage of this opportunity, first of all, that's given. The Mecco opportunity. Exactly. Okay. And and make the very best of it. Uh, so, Were there things that they told you you couldn't or shouldn't do, wh- whether it's interactions with law enforcement or just being out in Weston? You know, I know people say, like, don't be out there. Like, a lot of times in the black community, like, don't be out there embarrassing me. You know, like, you're you're carrying the whole race with you, like all the black people. Did you, did they ever have any conversations like that? It was more of, you know, just know where you, where, where you come from. More, okay. Wanted to keep more, you grounded. Exactly. You know, they were very, you know, well at disciplining us and, and, you know, we, we, we had, our we'll pull out that belt. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was, um, you know, it was a well-grounded uh, environment and, you know, loving environment. And we just knew, you know, mm-hmm. the, the boundaries were there. We understood where the boundaries were and we rarely crossed them. Hmm. Did they ever talk to you about anything specifically about how to interact with the cops? Uh, my dad did one time, um, most a couple of times he was talking to, talk to my brother and I when an incident came up and he was saying, you know, just make sure, you know, you're respectful and you do exactly what they say do. And it was, you know, never a problem um if we would do that you know my brother and i we did have one incident where we were um driving out to west end we had my mom's car and we we're going to the cadillac no this was the monte carlo oh, okay so we were driving her car and we were it was all of us mecco students in the car maybe about five or six of us in the car driving from weston driving from boston to weston oh, okay okay and there was an incident where a police officer followed us all the way down Route 9. I think it was a state trooper. They kept following us. And we got to Weston. And we got, and by the time we got to Weston, it was dark. And they pulled us over on a side road where no other, you know, no other cars really come. Mm. And 
and they made us get out of the car and they searched us and with no reason, right? With no reason. They pulled us over, searched us for no reason. And were you scared in that moment? Do you remember? Like were you guys It was yeah, it was it was a terrifying moment. Mm-hmm. Terrifying moment. Um and all they said was, Oh, you have a cracked tail light. Okay, sir. So you needed to get us all out of the car to check to let us know we have a cracked tail light. Exactly. So it was um you know, it was just a horrible moment to be embarrassed like that for for nothing. So Yeah. Um Okay, I have another question because I remember um so for those that don't know, I'm I was very close with my grandfather up until he passed away in 2015 and um i remember poppy used to always tell me this story about you he said he showed you this move and he was it was like a self-defense move and he said use it in case of emergency and apparently you you know high school when you were on the basketball team you used this move on this kid and poppy said you almost like either broke the kid's nose or something and I remember, I remember that story so vividly because I wanted him to teach me the move, and he wouldn't teach <laughs> me the move. He was like, "No, Brian almost messed this boy up, and we almost got in all this trouble." <laughs> so, um, you know, from your experience, and I think I remember him saying there was something race related with that incident. So, was that a racially charged incident? And tell me a little bit more about that. Um, so it was the incident itself was not, but there was some racial tension afterwards. Um, I was in a basketball game. And we were playing in a, um, it was a Christmas tournament. So we were away. It wasn't our school. It was another school. And there were maybe, I don't know, eight or 10 other schools that were playing in this tournament. And it was a two-day tournament. And this one player, he was like a famous football player on their team. So he was, you know, bigger than me, stronger than me. And he was pushing me around uh, like the whole game. And then one, I came down one time and I caught a rebound. He caught a rebound, I'm sorry, and he hauled off and he, you know, he hit me. He just, I mean, hit me with his elbow. And so next time I come down and I did the same to him with my rebound and I'm going down the court and I hear these footsteps coming after me and I turn around and he's in my face and I just reacted with that move that my father told What me. was the move? <laughs> Can't tell you the move. Can't tell you the move. That is horrible. <laughs> what and, if I need to defend myself? I need to know the move. And um, and I hit him right in his nose, and it like hit hit him right in his like nose and up into his eye socket. But I Ooh. just missed, I missed the edge of his nose. If I had hit the, his nose the way, you know, my father showed me how to do it, I, I probably could have killed him because I was going up into his skull. Ooh. Um, so. He was hurt pretty bad, and another one of my friends was his father was an eye doctor, and he was there to give him um, some um, services. But after that, so as we're leaving the um, the arena that night, as we're walking out, somebody in the stands said, "That's him right there," and I think they said the N word. I couldn't hear it that clearly, um, but. You know, I said, okay, um, these guys are, you know, you know, they're go- they're gonna go there. They're gonna come after me. And so, the next day, because it was like a two day tournament, my brother Ronald came out the next day, and with the- he was on a football team, as you know, mm-hmm. and he came with half the football team to kind of 
you know, play security a little bit. Mm. But no, nothing happened um, other than that. But um, it was, um, you know, one of the instances that I had. I mean, I think that's, that is, it's very interesting to hear that your um, experiences were for the most part positive. Um, I think when I think of um, inner city busing and desegregating schools, I think of Remember the Titans uh-huh. and how tense that time was. Um, yeah. And it sounds like, you know, that wasn't necessarily the case for you. So I guess my next question is transitioning. So we talked a little bit about your high school experience and just your formative years. But after going to, you know, living in this predominantly white world since kindergarten, preschool, you said, then you went to an HBCU. Uh-huh. You went to AMC. Yeah. And so with... Aggie, Aggie. <laughs> L-U. <laughs> um, no, I'm honorary Aggie. It's fine. Um, but I guess with all of the... Because you gave me the same speech um, when I went to Lincoln and it was, you know, out of state. And you're like, you know, with all the, the schools that are in Boston, what made you pick an HBCU for college? Did you pick an HBCU on purpose? What were you just wanting to get in a black world? What, what, were your, what was your thought process behind that? Well, it was, I was looking for a good architectural engineering program. As you know, that's my, my background and my degree. And I applied to uh, Florida A&M, North Carolina A&T, and several other schools here in Boston and around the country. Uh, so when I got into, um, I got into three schools. I got into Whitworth, I got into Syracuse, and I got into North Carolina A&T. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was... Um, and then I looked at, I didn't want to stay home. And then Syracuse um, wasn't a really diverse, you know, population, even though it was a great school. Mm. Um, and North Carolina a t they had such a, a great balance of everything that I wanted first in an education. And then, you know, socially uh, with being, uh, an all-black school, an HBCU. So, and then you had family down there too, so I'm sure that added your yeah, grandmother, it, right? It was helpful to go home on the weekends and just, you know, pig out and just relax and let uh, my grandmother spoil me. So that was another <laughs> big plus that I had just to be around them. But I just remember, you know, doing my first tour at A and T and. You know, the faculty, they just felt like family. Hmm. That's kind of the best way to describe yeah. it. I just remember going, you know, as I got into the school that, you know, these, these teachers, they cared. They cared whether you passed or failed. I mean, they were invested in you. And, yeah. I remember, you know, just having that experience, it's it's priceless. I can definitely agree in the test. And for anyone that's went to an HBCU, I'm sure you're thinking of a teacher or a faculty member right now that you're like, yep, that was my mom on campus. That was my dad Mm -hmm. on campus. So how did your world change when you went to an HBCU? So, and I'll tell you this, especially coming from a super white high school. So, you know, I share that I went to a predominantly white high school, but my, my experience with race was interesting because we, yes, I was born in Boston, but we moved to Maryland when I was three. And we lived in PG County, which, if you're not familiar, is a predominantly black area. Um, you got to say Prince George. You can't say PG. No, people people know <laughs> it as PG County, Dad. 
um, but Prince George's County. And, um, you know, it was a very black area. There was one white family on the block, but I don't remember ever like thinking of them as the white family. Um, I know Josh was very close with, um, my brother was very close with their son. And then I went to a predominantly black and, and Indian actually high um, elementary school and then middle school. And then we moved to Boston. So I came from this like very black world where I don't feel like I was ever consciously aware of my blackness because everybody around like, you know, looked similar to me. And then we moved to Boston, which was a culture shock because now it was like one of two or three black students in, in the room, in the school, not even just the room. Uh-huh. And it was a very cult, a, a big culture shock for me. And then, you know, I, I've, I had the black friends. I don't, I didn't make, I had a couple of white friends here and there, but I felt like I was like the token friend. Uh-huh. And so I stuck with the black kids, you know, those were, those are my friends. It was, it was a lot easier to, to mingle with them and to interact with them. Uh-huh. And then, you know, I went through the first two years of high school at that, in that school system. And then I moved to, uh, the other school, so my second high school, that was the private school. And, you know, that was a completely different experience because now it was a lot more uh, Hispanics and Latinos. And then it was like the white girls from Southie, which is a very different white girl than like the white girls from Newton. Uh-huh. And so I feel like going to an HBCU after being in a very white world for a long time, it was almost like, wow, like I don't because everybody's black here. I don't have to hang out with anybody just because they're black, you know, like, or I don't, you know, I'm not grab like, we're all black. So we're removing that. And it's like, Oh, like I can actually make friends based off of other things, other interests, instead of just the color of our skin. And so I feel like that's how my world changed in one way, going from an HBC, going from a super white high school to an HBCU. So I guess I'm curious for you, how did your world change? If at all, going from super white Weston to A&T. It really allowed me to connect in many in more ways than one with the African American community. It was because you saw, you know, wealthy blacks, you saw very poor blacks, uh, you saw the middle class blacks, uh, but you saw the empathy for everyone's community and, and how we were all connected. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a lot of things happening um, while I was in school with uh, racial um, relations with apartheid uh, mm. that, that was going on and. Uh, Nelson Mandela being freed while I was in college. So that was a big thing. Um, and just the whole the whole situation with um, the Central Park Five. Mm. And that was going on. And actually, um, a good friend of mine from A&T, his father and mother were, were a part of that situation. And they were uh, wow. fe- featured in that movie. Um, if you haven't seen the movie, the Central Park, or the, the series. I when They See Us. Yeah, when they see us. Mm-hmm. Um, so just being a part of that and hearing about that and um, just understanding the uh, the empathy that's going on. And, you know, even when that was happening with the Central Park Five, you know, we were saying that there's, there's no way that happened. We, we kept saying that. Uh, we kept, you know, we didn't know all the details of the story, but we just knew in our hearts and in our spirits that you know those five you know black boys did not rape and beat that white woman we just knew that mm-hmm. um you know there was the same thing with an incident in boston where uh, a man killed his wife 
Um, and then I think he threw her over the, the river. He shot himself and then he blamed it on mm. um, the, the black people in Mission Hill projects. And, mm. and it was, you know, it, it, even when the story came out and when it happened, I remember talking to my uncle and he said, no black man did that. There's no way that a black, you know, the black man did that. They're, and I just started processing things differently uh, because that, that HBCU experience just gave me a different filter, mm-hmm. it was a different understanding uh, for how to engage. And then even giving you a community where you feel safe to talk about those things. Like I remember two distinct um, situations. The first one was um, we, so obviously Lincoln is a HBCU. And so I remember somebody had spray painted the N word, like on our, um, the gates in the front of the school. And I just remember how heavy the whole campus felt that day. It was just like everybody was feeling that pain. Everyone was feeling that um, frustration, that anger. It was like I didn't have to hide how upset I was about that. I didn't have to hide how hurt I was, how offended I was, because everybody felt that way. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was just as upset. And I remember that. And I think I took that for granted because now that I'm no longer in that world, I realize how much I feel like or I felt like because I've made a conscious decision not to hide it anymore. Mm. But, you know, when you're first coming to corporate America, you hide some of that without even meaning to. You just know they can't relate. And I remember the second very distinct situation when I was in St. Louis for an internship. And it was the summer that um, the Trayvon Martin stuff happened. Mm -hmm. And I was a part of a program that was predominantly white. And I remember we went out to eat as the interns and there were maybe like three black interns. We went out to eat as the interns. And I remember like, cause I came from a place where we, you know, we had been talking about the Trayvon Martin thing all the time at Lincoln and how horrible it was. And this was the first time me, I heard a, you know, one of the white guys there being like, well, what was he doing out that late? Uh-huh. And I remember being like, he was a child. Like, what do, what do you mean? Like, This was a child that lost their life. And so I remember I was like, wow. Like in that moment, I felt like, okay, my pain is not recognized here. Because for him to say that was almost so dismissive of the fact that like this community was grieving. And so I feel like, you know, for me, my HBCU experience created this safe world where I was able to process those things safely. I remember when Obama was elected for a second term, like we had a party a party the whole campus like mm-hmm. outside turning up great time and it's like i don't know that turn i was it up. You're, you're turning up turning up with you're some music up. turning up you know with the, turning up the music you're, you're the college, turning, up. <laughs> turning up the music dad anyways it was just a great time oh, my dime you were turning up can you listen <laughs> you were turning up anyways back to what i was saying um but i just remember like having these spaces where blackness was not something i had to explain I didn't have to explain my hair. I didn't have to explain my slang, the way I grew up. Uh My world was just understood. And I had not lived in a world like that since elementary school. And I didn't realize how much I missed that. Uh But transitioning. So I going to talking about race. So I remember talking to mom or mom talking to me about race, especially when we were moving from Maryland to um, Newton. Uh I remember her, you know, having some conversations with me. They weren't, I don't remember like, in depth, like, let's sit down and talk about it. But she would say things here and there that would just make me aware of my race. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't ever remember talking to you or you talking to me about race. 
And so I guess I wonder, did you make a conscious decision not to talk to me and Josh about race or did you just not know how to approach the conversation or I guess what what was your thought process behind that? It was never a conscious decision. I think um, I I think I knew you were aware of race. I thought you understood who you were. And I think we did our best to make sure you were grounded in that. Uh, But it wasn't about to make you you know, notice differences. I wanted you to notice people for who they are mm. um, and to grow in that way and, and, and to understand people, people's character. Mm. Um, what about racism? Like race is one thing. And, and yeah, I get that. Like you want, like you said, you want your kids to see people for their character, um, not necessarily their skin color. But I don't, also don't remember us ever talking about racism. And I feel like I... and I'll be very honest and very transparent for me, you know, we grew up in these schools talking about like slavery and Jim Crow and all that stuff. And for me, it felt like so distant. Like I did not feel like I was very conscious of the fact that racism still existed until like, I can't even say college because I lived in a black world. And so there wasn't, you know, racism that was happening in that bubble. It was honestly when I got out of college and I was just like, Oh, and of course, it wasn't the uh, uh, overt racism where they're going to call you the N-word and all this stuff. It's very covert and it's very, you know, uh, kind of go under the radar where these microaggressions where you're like, why sh- why are they talking to me like, okay, girlfriend and like all that stuff? Like, wh- why do they assume that I talk like that? And why why would I talk to them like that? And so I feel like I was not fully aware of racism. I feel like it was almost like a, a smack in the face in adulthood where I was like, wow, this is like, wow, this is insane. And so I guess, you know, why not have the conversations about racism? Uh, I guess the only answer I can give you is that I didn't see the need to raise your defenses. Mm. Um, Well, my dad and my parents were raising me. There was a need to have more conversations. I thought that I had you in an environment where you were protected, where yeah. I could, I had easy access to you, where, you know, I could get to you literally within 30 minutes, um, probably on any given day. Um, so it was, you know, different for my parents when they were raising my brother and I, because we were going to school, you know, an hour away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had the sense that, you know, I could get to you and protect you with any situation came up and it was just more of a, a protective covering that we had over you both. And so it wasn't, there wasn't an objective decision to say, Hey, we're not going to expose you to it. Mm-hmm. I think we approached it, or at least I did uh, approached it from the sense that when and if an ugly racist um, situation comes up, I think we certainly addressed it and talked about it, but there weren't, you know, a lot of, those instances that came up yeah. that we felt the need to have a detailed dive in, you know, discussion about. Yeah. And I guess I'm trying to figure out what I would do as a parent, because I, you know, there's a part of me that appreciates the fact that I did not think about racism until I was, you know, in my twenties almost. Mm-hmm. But then there's a part of me that remembers just like how, shocking it was and jarring it was at 22 realizing like you know the the microaggressions of racism Mm -hmm. and you know and I I did learn about 
some of this stuff in um in college too but when you experience it I guess I'd never experienced it and so I felt unprepared to handle it when I did experience it and Uh so I'm not sure you know if I would as I'm raising kids if I would want to take those blinders off early if it's if it's irresponsible not to do that like if it's irresponsible not to tell you know say if I had a son early on about these things or if I want to protect that innocence for longer and I think I've been hearing a lot of conversations about people saying this has caused them to have these conversations with their kids at very young ages no, I, I'm not necessarily asking a question. I guess I'm just thinking out loud here. I don't know what the right answer is. I, I had a friend ask me, she has a three-year-old and she's like, and she's a white woman. She's like, how do I explain this to my daughter? And I, I struggled. I'm like, ah, that's hard, you know? And so I guess if you could go back, would you do anything different or, you know, or for anybody that has questions about how to talk to their kids about race, do you feel like, is your stance wait till something happens, then talk about it, or being proactive if you could go back? Yeah, it's hard to, you know, break out a book and say and try to define and help someone understand uh, exactly what racism mm. is. You have to experience it. It's, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like saying, um, it's kind of like you wanting to go on, on a roller coaster and me saying, uh, hold up, hold up, you know, there's some dangers, but all you see are your friends on the roller coaster and they're not afraid of the roller coaster and all you hear is nothing but them screaming and have a good time, but, you know, there are some inherent dangers when you go up that, you know, that steep hill mm-hmm. and come down, you know, super fast that it's hard to explain if you mm-hmm. don't actually go That's through. a very so, interesting perspective. Uh, that, yeah, so it's... um you know, yeah, there are things that should be brought up and, and there are warnings um, that should be delivered. But to try to sit down and have a conversation and say, uh, Brianna, you should feel this way because this is how white people are going to treat you. Is it, It's not fair to you and it's not fair to all white people because I don't, so I don't, I didn't, I made a conscious decision not to put that type of um, uh, stigma mm-hmm. on you and burden on you but I was very cautious uh, because remember my my parents were really really um, you know pro black and, and and just into the history of it. So it was it was something I was very cautious of. But I never saw the need to sit down and and drill it in your head and make you super 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 aware of it. That was just me and, and so is that so in general is that your like for any parents that are listening to this and they're like, okay, how should I approach this conversation? Are you saying, and I think there can be two different groups of parents. Are you specifically saying black parents, if someone were to ask for the advice to say like, wait, maybe wait until it happens. I I think there's any number of instances that are going on today. Um, to open the door. can use to talk about okay to open the door and have a conversation okay yeah I, I mean you know I don't exactly. have kids you obviously so. raised a wonderful fabulous daughter um you know I haven't raised any children mm-hmm. but I think that right now it's imperative to have these conversations whether you're black whether you're white especially if you're white to be honest I think it's imperative to use this moment to start educating your children um because unfortunately yeah. this is 
racism does exist and this is not an isolated incident and you would be doing your child a disservice in my opinion if you were not leaning into this conversation right now no matter how hard it is you know you can find books and use children friendly language but do not pretend like this doesn't exist like I know and I get it right like you want to protect their innocence as long as possible but I know even um Zoe my little your niece um 11 years old uh, I think what on Friday she had called me and she's like Missy how, how are you doing like how are you feeling with everything going on and I was just like oh my goodness like you're so young to have to even think about this but I think it's important she went you know she went to the rally she marched and I just think that it's important as much as it's it feels like it sucks that we have to talk about it right now I think it's important um, are yeah. you at all? So I feel like I haven't lived through that many of, well, let me not say that I have lived through a handful of these and I feel like this, this George Floyd incident. And when I say a handful of these, I mean, um, situations of police brutality or black men being killed. And I take that back. Actually, it's been way more than a handful, but I think ones that have blown up like this and gotten this much uh, attention. um, For me, I feel like this is the first instance where white people are actually reaching out to me to start conversations about racism, to ask me about um, what's going on, how I'm feeling to check on me. But I was telling you that my boss had reached out to me And, you know, my boss is a white woman and she was like, hey, how are you? Like, are you okay? Do you need any time? And I remember seeing your face. We were on FaceTime and you looked like that was such a foreign thing, like a white person to show empathy at a time like this. Yeah, that's remarkable. Um, First of all, shout out to your boss and kudos. And I thank her uh, for doing that. It's just that anybody who was hurting, anybody who's hurting, period. Um, and not just at this time, but at any time, for any reason, um, mm-hmm. that person wants empathy. Are you surprised and, by that empathy? And when, like, you know, a lot are you surprised by the the conversations that I, people are having with, like, we're having with white people right now? Yes, I was surprised. I, I was, I was mm-hmm. pleasantly surprised. I think that's the best way to say it. Um, and it's because um, a lot of people don't know how to just say, hey, are you OK? Uh, I remember I had a meeting the other day, a Zoom meeting with um, some folks. And it's usually four of us. We have this weekly meeting and only two of us showed up. It was myself and one of my other co-workers. And, she, and she's a white uh, lady. And she said, hey, Brian, how you doing? I said, OK. Mm. She said, no, Brian, how are you doing? And she literally just like it was like she pierced right mm. through me. She could see right through me. And and we unfortunately the other two people never showed up. And we literally had a 30 minute yeah. conversation on, about how I was doing. So that was beautiful. And I and I needed that. And I and I, I so needed someone to just pop that bubble and say This is a safe hey, space. You can be you honest here. And so it's so it's so interesting exactly. that you say that because On last week's podcast, I talked about how one of the things that I was no longer doing was pretending that I'm okay when I'm not. But I'll be very honest in saying that it's 
you don't even realize how how ingrained this switching this code switching is because even though I made this conscious decision that I was not going to do that I caught myself several times this week when someone's like hey how are you be like I'm okay and then having to go back and be like actually I'm not okay and it's hard because you you just automatically like I don't even know how to describe it you just put this wall up or put that mask on and I think it's so ingrained in us and you know I know that your generation is very much so put your head down get your work done just you know do what you got to do don't 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 make any waves a a little bit and I feel like what I Uh think is very interesting about the conversations that I'm having with white people and my white friends now it's like this is the expectation moving forward like this is the expectation I mean Mm. god forbid we don't want any more of these situations to happen but the expectation moving forward is for you to yeah. acknowledge racism, for you to acknowledge when your um, your black uh, coworkers are going through something. This is the expectation moving forward. All we're saying as black men is that give us some empathy. Reach out. Talk to that black man in your life and ask him. If you're a white person right now, you know somebody that you can say, mm-hmm. especially if you can say you love somebody and you haven't picked up the phone, call them or shot Mm -hmm. them a text and say, hey, let's talk and ask them, simply ask them, have you, what is your experience with this type Mm -hmm. of situation or with police brutality? And just ask the question. If you do nothing else, but do that, you'll be amazed at the responses that you get. Right. Like I said this last week, like you don't have to feel like you have to say the right thing. And I think that's advice, not just for white people. That's for anybody. That's for any non-black person, if you, like you said, if you have somebody that is black in your life that you say that you love, that you know that you're in close proximity to, a coworker, you need to be reaching out to have a conversation. And don't do it to check the box because we know when it's a check the box conversation. I had somebody reach out to me today, two weeks later, and it felt very check the boxy. Be genuine. You don't have Uh to do it out of guilt do it because you genuinely want to check in on them. If you were just reaching out to the, all the black people in your phone, just cause you're like, Oh my gosh, I don't want to look bad. If I don't save it. But if you uh-huh. are like, wow, I wonder yeah, how Brianna's exactly. doing. That's when I want you to text because I don't, I don't need your, your messages uh-huh. just to get the guilt off your chest. But my last, one of my last questions uh-huh. is, so you're obviously a black man in a very white industry. You're in engineering, but you're also a black man in a very Latino and Hispanic world um, with your wife being Puerto Rican, you go to a Hispanic Uh church. So what kind of conversations Uh have you had with the Latino community that you're very much so a part of about this? And what kind of conversations have you had with your wife, Marilena about this? Yeah. So there was, um, there's been a lot of conversation. I've actually preached on this this past Sunday, Um, but it, it's it's racism is um, is very prevalent in the mm-hmm. Puerto Rican and Hispanic community as well, um, and it's it's surprisingly well colorism exists I mean, in all cultures. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Exactly. So, but and, and theirs is you know they have an indigenous culture, they have a uh, a Spaniard culture, so Afro Latino uh, culture, American, uh, an Af- mm-hmm. Afro Latino culture. I'm sorry, um, that are all blended together. And I was literally just talking about. Uh, this was my pastor today, and um, you know he he was saying that you know when he was growing up, uh, his dad used to tell him, you know, don't marry mm-hmm. somebody who's dark skin, 
because you're gonna. I have you're, a friend whose mom had said that. Yeah. She said her her child could marry yeah. anyone but a black man. Her daughter. Hmm. And it's um. So yeah, it's very prevalent. I remember when Marilyn and I saw the video of George Floyd. Um, she was heartbroken. She couldn't believe what she was seeing. And then we started started to see the protests, and we were thinking of ways of how we could do some type of, um, you know, silent mm-hmm. protest. And so she developed, as you know, a shirt, and it says, uh, "I can't breathe," and the "I" is the fist of a oh, black wow. man. Oh wow! I never got that. That was and... the "I." Wow, <laughs> I've seen the shirt several times. I was like, "Oh, it says can't breathe." <laughs> got it. So, and as you know, the eye, the, the black fist represents, uh, is a symbol of uh, oppression against against oppression in the black community. Uh, so when she showed me the, the shirt, she, I mean, as you know, with her decorating and all that she does, she was very, you know, mm. proud and happy about the decoration. I mm. began to weep inside and, and to get emotional because all I could hear was George mm. Floyd's voice saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Mm. All I could hear was Eric Gardner's voice. I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And so it took me, Mm. I I couldn't even say anything to her because I was Mm. so emotionally wrapped up into the voices that I heard. Um, uh, JJ's voice, um, you know, him saying it in the video. Um, You know, so this is things that, that are deeply rooted in my brain. In the videos that I play in my head. How are you decompressing? It's been a heavy week. We're stuck in the house, so we don't even have the usual distractions of, oh, I can go to the movies or I can hang out with friends to distract myself. How are you decompressing? That's like you watching somebody lose their life, a man that looks like you, a man that, you know, looks like your brothers, your your friends. How, How are you decompressing after that? Um, a lot of prayer. It's been a lot of prayer. Um, it's, uh, I mean, fortunately, I've been conducting um, a marriage counseling class over the past uh, few months, and it's allowed me to stay, mm. you know, immersed in my studies, uh, mm. helping these other couples um, navigate the wonderful waters of, uh, of marriage. But uh, <laughs> mm. so it, it, it's kept me grounded and focused. Mm. Um, on God's word, and it keeps me. Um, it, 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 it it's an awesome thing when you hear God's voice and He speaks to you, and um, so He's been uh, mm-hmm. just kind of guiding me through that's, this. So that's awesome. That's I, I think me too. I've been watching a bunch of sermons. Um, I've been listening to um a bunch of just worship music. I also bought a plant because I just felt this overwhelming need and desire to like feed something and watch it grow. Like I was talking to one of my friends about this, like watching, having something to look forward to of like, Oh, I'm feeding this plant and I'm watching it grow. I'm able to nurture it um, and, and create life instead of focusing on a life that was taken. Um, and so my last question for you is where do you think we go from here? Hmm. I think there's gotta be action. Um, a lot of action and, and action starts. And we, when I say action, people, I know the first thing people think 
you okay. know, at the presidential level and the things like that. But action starts with action starts with us. Starts with me, you, and everyone listening to this podcast. I mean, it's always something that we can do. Um, we can. I had a conversation with someone today who was mm. saying, "Oh, they're not going to vote." And, was that a black person? And because they had a, uh, it was a white person, and and they were frustrated and they didn't like Biden. They didn't like. Um, is this a friend of yours? Trump. You don't got to tell me were, who it is, but. Um. Oh, I know who it was. It's somebody very you know, irresponsible you of them. Oh. Very. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so, and so, I told this person. I said, um, and they kept asking me, "Well, who am I going to vote for? Who am I going to vote for?" I said, "I'm not going to tell won't. you who am I gonna, who I'm going to vote for." I said, "You got to you got to tell me um, who you're going to vote for and why you're going to vote for this person. And if you don't, you know, have a strong reason, you need to make up a reason. You need to think about it. You need to investigate." Yeah, know, the option is not who, to vote. You're gonna you vote need for. to do your research and, and find out the exactly. Yeah. You need to vote, and it, it, if you're voting for um, Trump, you don't need to vote. <laughs> Let me just be clear. <laughs> well, it, 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 it's it's just so irresponsible to not vote. I mean, when you think of all, you know, if we're talking still on the subject of race relations, you think of all the the black people that suffered, that died, that yeah. marched for the right to vote. And so many people just take that very cavalier and they don't vote. It's sad. It's really sad. There are countries in this world where everyone Mm. is required to vote. And um, yeah. Okay. So where do we go from here? Action and one tangible action is voting, making sure that you're registered to vote. We have elections going on right now at the local level. And then we have obviously a presidential election in November. I think my listeners for the most part, know this and I think you guys are all socially responsible and are all registered to vote. If not, this is me guilt tripping you. You definitely should be and need to be. Um, all right, dad. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you allowing me to pick your brain about this heavy topic and um, yeah, just allowing us to have your time and, and sharing your perspective with my listeners. So I love you and I will talk to you later. <laughs>